Welcome to the Heartland Free Sermon Podcast. We're so happy to have you. If you're a first-time listener and you'd like to get to know more about us as a church, click the link in the podcast description. And if you'd like to fill out our online connection card, you can do that there as well. Thanks for joining us, and let's get into a fantastic message. I love Greg Kukul's book, The Story of Reality. The subtitle is How the World Began, How It Ends, and Everything Important That Happens in Between. It has the potential to do for our generation today what C.S. Lewis did when he wrote Mere Christianity. In other words, it has the potential to be a classic. Greg Kukul describes the gospel in a new and fresh way that connects well with our culture. You see, the historical narrative that the Bible tells is the true story of reality. It's the real story as compared to legend and myths and fairy tales. And not only that, it really sets the bars for all other stories. In fact, whether you are reading a novel or watching a movie, you probably won't like it unless it has four parts, how things began, what went wrong, how to fix it, and how will things end. If you come out of the movie and it hasn't had those four parts, you're likely to be disappointed. And you see, this is what the Bible does for us with the true story. The Bible tells us where we came from. We were created in paradise originally, that's Genesis 1 and 2. Then the Bible tells us what went wrong for both the universe and for you personally. There was the problem of sin entered into the world, which is introduced in Genesis 3. And interestingly, um, Amazon right now is producing a whole new series called The Rings of Power, based on Tolkien's writing, The Lord of the Rings, and uh, they are spending a billion dollars on it. And it basically is a retelling of Genesis chapter 3. Isn't that interesting? Then, then the Bible tells us, third, how our sin problem can be fixed. That's why Jesus came. Matthew 1.21 says, He shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. There is a way of salvation for those who trust Christ. And then the Bible tells us, number four, where we're going. That there is paradise regained. That is possible for us. The new heaven and the new earth for all of those who are followers of Christ. And it also shows us what's ahead for those who are not followers of Christ. And that is hell for those who reject Christ in the tail end of Revelation chapter 20. Now here's what we've been emphasizing in our current sermon series on the B-I-B-L-E. Every time Jesus references the Old Testament, throughout his earthly ministry, he accepts the scripture narratives at face value as an accurate historical description of events that really happened. Over the last few weeks, we've noticed what, uh, we've looked at what Jesus taught about creation, and then what Jesus taught about Noah, and then what Jesus taught about Abraham, and last week what Jesus taught about Sodom, and today we come to what Jesus teaches 
about Moses. Moses is mentioned in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament character, 79 times, 35 times in the four Gospels, 20 times from the lips of Jesus himself. You see, Moses plays a very important role in the historical narrative of Scripture. Up until the time of Moses, mankind only had natural revelation to reveal sin to us. Romans 1 and 2 tell us that creation itself, everything we see around us, will reveal our sin to us so that we are without excuse, Romans 1 says. Creation also, uh, and the part of creation that's our conscience, God made us with this internal uh, barometer to measure when we're doing something wrong. It's, it's he placed morality, he wrote his laws on our heart. So we have this conscience. And uh, that is too as part of natural revelation. But when Moses came along, he brought God's special revelation to us at Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. That was the first time mankind had God's commandments written out for them. Romans 3.20 says, Through the law, we became conscious of sin. And that's why Galatians 3.24 says, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ in order that we might be justified, justified means just as if I'd never sinned, so that we can be justified by faith. Hebrews 10 goes on to say, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Later in Hebrews 10, the Bible explains that Jesus set aside the first covenant, that is the law, in order to establish the second, which is grace. Verse 10 says, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Moses set the table for the arrival of Christ. And like no one else in the Old Testament, except maybe Joseph, And uh, there's also one other character, Elisha. We will look at him. Uh, Moses was a tremendous type of Christ. He modeled the life of Christ. He was a forerunner of Jesus, and he did that in five different ways. So we're going to look at those today. First, there was a threat at birth. Both Moses and Jesus were threatened at birth. Before Moses was born, the Pharaoh of Egypt issued an ominous threat. Exodus 1.15 says, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But Moses wasn't killed, was he? This is a very important lesson for us. You see, The safest place in the universe is right square in the middle of God's will. In this world, we do face threats on every side. James 4 tells us life is a vapor, and it appears for a little while, and then it vanishes. 
Every breath you take is at the pleasure of your creator. Therefore, there is no security anywhere in the universe except for living a life sold out to Jesus. We are really like, uh, like we're dangling from a thread with the fires of hell below it. That before we accept Christ, that's basically our status. For Moses, he faced death threats from the moment he was born, which wasn't all that different than what happened to Jesus, right? Another king issued a horrific decree. Matthew 2.16 says, when Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and his vicinity who were two years old and under. Both Moses and Jesus, they entered our world with death threats hanging over them. And that brings us to the second parallel between Jesus and Moses. Second similarity is both of them experienced refuge in Egypt. Exodus 2.5 says of the baby Moses, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. She saw the basket that contained the baby Moses. She opened it and she saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. Baby Moses found refuge in Egypt. And look what happened to baby Jesus. Matthew 2.14. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother Mary during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. You know, the nation of Egypt plays a double role in the narrative of Scripture. Before it became a place of bondage, it became a place of refuge. There's a very important lesson here for us. Do you realize that you can find refuge even though you are surrounded by evil on every side? It's true. Maybe you have a spouse today that is not walking with Jesus and you're wondering, what am I gonna do? Maybe you have a family that's having all kinds of problems. Maybe things at work are falling apart and you can feel the pressure of that. Maybe you work in an environment that is very hostile to Christians. You can still find refuge right in the very citadel of evil, just as both Jesus and Moses did. You see, Egypt, along with Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia and the Greeks and the Romans, Egypt was one of the six great powers in the ancient world. Each of them buffeted the people of Israel. Each of them had their day in the sun you know, as Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. Each takes their turn, their day in the sun. And that was true of each of these empires. All of them were pagan empires that celebrated the kingdom of man over the kingdom of God. Egypt was reigning supreme when Abraham first sojourned there. And I'm gonna mention some dates here, but I'm gonna do it for a very important reason. The first time Abraham visited Egypt was in 1921 BC, after a famine had struck the Promised Land. You can find this in Genesis 12.10. Then Abraham's grandson 
and Jacob and his sons, they found refuge in Egypt during another famine that came 206 years later. The year was 1715 B.C. And one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, became prime minister of Egypt. So for a period of time, the children of Israel were living under the protection of Egypt's pharaoh, the most powerful pagan ruler on earth. God works in mysterious ways. He protected Abraham. He protected Jacob and Joseph. Folks, he can protect you. Moses found this out. He also found refuge in Egypt after he was born. The year now when he was born, 1571 B.C. And Moses was raised to be an heir to, the, to Egypt's throne. This was 350 years after Abraham first traveled to Egypt. Eighty years later, the year now is 1491 B.C. This is all very important, okay, the years. Moses would lead his people out of Egypt in the Exodus, and get this, he would do it 430 years from Abraham's first sojourn to Egypt. At the end of the 430 years, then what does it say? To the very day, the exact day. The Apostle Paul cites this same number, 430, in Galatians 3.16. Now, why is that important? It's important because, folks, God works with exact precision. He arranges complex details he brings them to pass in such a way that it never violates the free will of mankind. Isn't that fascinating? You know, Sue's dad is with us here today, and we've talked many times uh, before Sue and I met, and he was wrestling with some different jobs, and one of them was in Montana, one was up in the North Shore and various places. If that would have happened, I would never have met Sue. Right? I mean, that's the way each of our lives are, that way. And if I hadn't met Sue, then my four daughters would have never happened, right? You know, you see how God orchestrates things very precisely, and yet, all the time, Don made independent, you know, he made free decisions where he was going to move and work and bring his family. Uh, Sue made a free decision to date a yo-yo like me. <laughs> And I made a free decision to talk her into marrying me. <laughs> and so, you know, God works with exact precision, but he never violates our free will. And you know what? He does the same thing in your life. He really does. Now, Acts 17, 26 says this. I love this verse. From one man, which was Adam, he, God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. Folks, if you're buying a house and the, 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 the perfect deal falls through, don't worry about it. That was not the exact place 
where God wanted you to live. Don't worry about it, okay? Doesn't it give you a lot of freedom to know that? Uh, God determined the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. You see, God has determined when you will live, what age of history. It's not a surprise that you're living here in the 21st century. God could have put you in another century without computers. <laughs> Which some of us wouldn't have been uh, at all disappointed about. <laughs> and uh, God determines when you will live. He determines how long you will live. He determines the exact number of your days. That's what Psalm 139 says. You're not born one day sooner than God ordains. You're not, you don't die one day sooner than, than God ordains. And he determines where you will live, the exact places where you will live, and he provides an opportunity. Why does God do this? So that people will reach out for him and find him. But he's not far from any of us, you know? I mean, people worry about that. You know, when I was, when I was a student uh, growing up, going to college and stuff, they would always talk about the heathen. You know, what it would, like, hey, the heathen have a chance to know God too. Because guess what? If they respond to the light that God has given them, God's gonna bring them more light. Every human being has a chance to be saved. God says that, okay? God works with great precision, and Egypt, interestingly, was always interwoven with God's plans for Israel up until our present day. For the next 15 centuries after Moses, Israel would play this cat and mouse game with, with Egypt. Sometimes they were friends, sometimes they were enemies. King Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter, so they were friends. But his son, King Rehoboam, was invaded by Egypt, so they were enemies. King Hezekiah was an ally to Egypt, so they were friends. But the Egyptian army killed King Josiah, so they were enemies. <laughs> and during this entire time, all the way up to the time of Christ, there was a large Jewish community that lived in Egypt. In fact, in about 250 BC, it was a group of Jewish scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, that translated the entire Hebrew Bible into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And it is, was likely used by both Jesus and his disciples in their ministry. And you can trace this all the way up to today. Egypt and Israel have always been interwoven up to the Camp David Accords. Remember Jimmy Carter? And he, was, he had Prime Minister Begin, and he had Prime Minister Sadat, and he was getting them together. Remember that? So it's all the way up to the present time. Now this shouldn't surprise us. Then that baby Jesus and his parents Joseph and Mary found refuge in Egypt. The lesson for us is clear. You can find refuge. You also can find refuge in the midst of darkness, even though the darkness is all around you. Now this brings us to the third similarity between Moses and Jesus. Both of them had a testing in the wilderness, okay? 
Exodus 2.15 says, Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Midian's a desert. Moses lived there for 40 years. It was a time of testing for him. God was chiseling Moses. God was molding him into a godly man who could lead his people Israel. In the same way, before Jesus began his public ministry, God brought him out in the desert for a season of testing, according to Matthew 4, 2. And this involved not 40 years, but 40 days, 40 nights of fasting, followed by an intense period of being tempted by, G by Satan. Nothing in Jesus' life to this point challenged him like this season of testing. Do you know what, folks? God does the same to you and me. When I was a young boy, I remember hearing a quote by author and pastor A.W. Tozer who said, it is doubtful whether God can bless a man or a woman greatly until he has hurt him deeply. As a teenager, I didn't like that quote. <laughs> and you know what, folks? I still don't really like that quote. In fact, I find it rather scary. But now that I've done a little living, 60 plus, okay, I do, you know what? I get it. <laughs> I get it. It's true. When I ran in Grandma's Marathon several years ago, I ran about 500 miles in training. I did three 20-mile runs. They were agonizing. I had never gone more than six miles up to that point. But you know what? Without that training, never would have made Grandma's Marathon. And the same is true in living for Christ. God never wastes a trial. If you're in the middle of a season of trial and troubles and testing, it isn't any fun. I've been there. I've grumbled. I've said, God, what are you doing? I don't like this. But, get this, if you place your trust in Christ, there will be a day when the fog will clear. There will be a day when you will see how that trial made you strong and how that trial enabled you to do things for God and for others that would never have been possible without that season of testing. It's no fun, is it, DJ? You see, that's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 1.8, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. And this but this happened, Paul says, but this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And that's also the reason Paul could say, just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ, our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. What's the Bible saying there? 
It's telling us that God comforts you in seasons of suffering so that you can comfort others. That was true of Moses. It's true of Jesus. It's true of you. Seasons of suffering and testing and pain, they do not happen randomly. They do not happen without meaning and purpose. It is all part of God's master plan. God put us on a planet that is broken and sin-cursed, and it's not always easy living here. But friends, there will be a day when the curse is lifted and all things will be made new. Praise God. Now that's because of a fourth similarity between Moses and, and Jesus. Both Moses and Jesus led an exodus. Exodus just means exit, okay? They led an exodus out of bondage, both Jesus and Moses. When God said to Moses to speak to Pharaoh, God said, I want you to say one thing to him, let my people go. And no one says that like Charlton Heston. <laughs> now, as you may know, it took a few trips to get through to Pharaoh. As God and Moses, they steadily turned up the heat on Pharaoh. Time and time again, Pharaoh would agree only to harden his heart later until finally the exodus happened. But guess what? Pharaoh changes his mind once again, sends his army, and they end up at the bottom of the Red Sea. Do you realize that 15 centuries later, Jesus came for a similar purpose? Jesus came to lead his people out of bondage. Jesus came to liberate us from bondage, the bondage of sin. Luke 4, 18, Jesus puts his, he explains his mission like this. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Later, in Luke 19.10, Jesus offered a simpler version of his mission. He said, you know what? I came to seek and save the lost. Ironically, he would do that by dying for them. In Matthew 28, 28 Jesus explained that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I love how the beloved hymn puts it. He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now... I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. Moses came to set his people free by leading them out of the bondage of Egypt to the promised land. 
and there the people of Israel. They would practice seven feasts, which would constantly remind them of what God had done for them, and it would set the table for what Jesus was going to do. The first feast, and they did this year after year after year, these seven feasts. The first feast is the Feast of Passover, which represent, it foreshadowed the death of Christ. It reminded them that there is no forgiveness of sin without blood being shed. 1,500 years later, Jesus would fulfill this feast by shedding his blood to forgive their sins. The second feast was unleavened bread, and it foreshadowed the burial of Christ. It reminded the Israelites that they were set apart for holiness as leaven was a symbol for sin. 1,500 years later, Jesus fulfilled this feast by living a sinless life, and you know what? He was buried without sin, without ever committing a sin, without leaven. The feast of first fruits, it foreshadowed the resurrection of Christ. It was a call for the Israelites to put Christ first, put God first by sacrificing their first fruits. 1,500 years later, Jesus fulfilled this feast. He rose from the dead as the first fruits of all of those who would rise from the dead. And that includes you and me if you're trusting in Jesus. The Feast of Pentecost, it represents Acts chapter 2. It represents the formation of the church. It reminded the Israelites that their harvest came from the hand of God. And 1,500 years later, Jesus founded the church, and he did that to bring in this massive harvest of souls, millions and millions of souls who would populate his kingdom. The Feast of Trumpets. <laughs> now the fall feasts, they foreshadow the return of Christ. The Feast of Trumpets foreshadows the rapture. It, the feast was a constant reminder to the Israelites of the need for repentance. And 1,500 years later, Jesus fulfilled this feast by teaching us to live in a constant state of repentance so that we are ready at any moment when the trumpet sounds and Christ returns to rapture his church. The Day of Atonement foreshadowed the return of Christ after the tribulation period. The Day of Atonement was a solemn assembly for the Israelite people when they would look to God for their salvation. 1,500 years later, Jesus came as a once-for-all atonement for sin. And the Jewish people would fully realize this at the end of the tribulation period, when their backs are against the wall and the Antichrist has them surrounded and Christ returns and the prophet Zechariah says that Jews will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will receive him as their Messiah. Praise God. The seventh feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. 
It foreshadows the millennial kingdom of Christ when Jesus will rule upon this earth for a thousand years. It reminded the Israelites that they would tabernacle, they would live with God when he reigns over the whole world from Jerusalem, according to Micah chapter 4. 1,500 years later, Jesus announced the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven would be fully realized when Jesus reigns out of Jerusalem for a 1,000 years. Heartland family, never forget, you're on the winning team, folks. God is preparing a kingdom for you and all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it will never end. Praise God. Now this brings us to the fifth similarity between Moses and Jesus. Both Moses and Jesus had a reverence, a deep reverence for God's word. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote 187 chapters of scripture, more than twice as much as any other author of scripture. Moses cataloged a total of 613 commandments. 214 were positive commands, God wants us to do this, and 365, one for every day of the, of the year, 365 were negative commandments, things that God doesn't want us to do. And then Moses said this to the Israelites, Deuteronomy 6, these commandments that I'm giving you today are upon your hearts. Impress them on your children and talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now I'd call that reverence for God's word. And I want to ask you today, do you honor God's word like that? Moses had a reverence for God's word. And you see, this is why we stress scripture memory in Awana and Sunday school. It should be a lifelong practice for all of us. As the psalmist said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. When Jesus came, it should be no surprise to find that he also had a deep reverence for God's word. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, do not, come, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from this law until everything is accomplished. And then Jesus makes this astounding statement. He says, anyone who breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I close with this. I love the Ten Commandments movie. I love Charlton Heston. Yul Brynner, 
Ann Baxter, these uh, mega movie stars in the 50s. The Ten Commandments movie won the Best Picture Academy Award for 1956. It is widely regarded as one of the ten best movies of all time. The Ten Commandments, you know, and it's usually on at Easter time, sometimes at Christmas time. It's, it's one of those movies where uh, many times the kids would have it on, they'd be watching it, and I'd be walking in from somewhere, and I could jump into that movie at virtually any place in the film and find myself absolutely riveted to the screen. The legendary director, Cecil DeMille, he did not cut any corners. They filmed on location in Egypt, They filmed on location in the Sinai Peninsula. They filmed on location at Mount Sinai. And they spent six months, get this, they spent six months, they spent cutting edge technology in filming one scene, the parting of the Red Sea. In fact, Cecil DeMille would not even reveal his secrets as to how they did it. Okay, that was cutting edge. I mean, now you watch it today, it it looks a little goofy, but that was cutting edge in 1956. And yet the whole reason the movie is so powerful is because Moses is such a gripping historical figure. Now it helps having Charlton Heston play the part. But I believe the real reason for the lasting impact is because the true story of Moses, it foreshadows the greatest story ever told. That of Jesus himself, the one who brought love and truth together at the cross. When Charlton Heston says, let my people go, we can feel the burden of a people longing to be set free. I hear that today and I say, oh, Lord, come and visit our sin-sick land and let my people go. Liberate them from the sin that isn't trapped them. And when the Red Sea parts, we can feel the power of God intervening on our behalf. And you know what basically God does is he makes a road to heaven. Are you on that road to heaven? Have you experienced the liberating impact of the cross where Jesus brought together love and truth in providing you a way of escape from the bondage of sin? Are you on the road to heaven? 